0: Simple Beep, Episode 90, The iPod at 20. Hello and welcome back to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormony.
1: And I'm Brian Satorius.
0: And we are back for our 90th episode, one of our special episodes. Uh, Of course, long-time listeners know that we are no longer releasing uh, regular episodes. So if we are on the mic talking about classic Apple, it means that there is a big milestone on the calendar.
1: And this is uh, certainly one of them. This is uh, the 20th anniversary of a product, arguably other than the iMac, that uh, was instrumental in turning Apple around into the kind of company that would make our podcast uh, possible. We would still be running
0: Macs that we could talk into. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, it's the twentieth anniversary of the iPod's release. I think Brian, you're absolutely right that the uh the iMac iPod tandem is the the thing that saved Apple and turned them into a two Trillion dollar behemoth. Oh my
1: goodness. Yeah.
0: Which is a little bit wild to think about. A lot of the numbers that we'll talk about as we go back over the legacy of the iPod will be on a much, much smaller scale. Yeah. I think one of the things that's interesting to think about as we look back over as long an arc as 20 years is how, in the terms of today's Apple, the iPod is a blip. But it was it was like the first heartbeat <laughs> yeah. like the uh, enabled so much to come afterwards. It was not just a tiny blip. It was the first blip on a chart that then started going exponential.
1: A lot of people use hockey stick growth to kind of talk about that, that exponential growth that you just referenced. Some people will talk about a rocket ship. And if you think about a rocket ship, um, it is certainly part of that. But it's like the rocket clearing the tower when observed at scale from where the rocket is now.
0: <laughs> yeah, you're playing Kerbal Space Program and you zo- <laughs> You see where you are now and you zoom out and, and you're, the little planet that you left is about 12 pixels. <laughs> yeah. That's the iPod, but you wouldn't be here without it.
1: <laughs> and so we'll obviously start by talking about the development process, how the iPod came to be. Um, and a lot of, at least the the good details that I found were taken from a MacWorld article published for the 10th anniversary of the iPod <laughs> back in 2011, and even how far Apple has come since then is something to behold.
0: Right. I mean, some of the tens that we talked about recently, the App Store, the iPad, those are those are the 10-year anniversaries that were in uh, like recently in the rearview mirror. So mm-hmm. uh, that's the kind of stuff that's happened since that article has been written.
1: So, if you think about the the landscape of Apple as a computer company, it was still Apple Computer back then, and uh, the the personal music, I guess, personal music player industry. How were people listening to music? Where was the iPod slotting into in terms of the industry, in terms of popular culture? Um, Apple's place, I think, was completely software driven. They had just acquired SoundJam MP. Uh, There's plenty of information about this in our own back archives. I think we did two episodes on this. Yeah. Um, And so Apple had iTunes, which was a software product. Um, There were ways to get MP3s, but they weren't necessarily legal. Rip, mix, burn. It's totally legal. There you go. That's true. Um, But there was no 99 cent store. And uh, when you wanted to play your however you got them, MP3s. Uh, it was either through the software on your Mac, or like I just said, you would burn them to a CD, or there were a handful of other uh, MP3 hardware devices that were not made by Apple. And when I say handful, sometimes I meant like they would take up the entirety of your hand when you were <laughs> holding them and listening to them. Yeah, or you could be
0: super cool like me and get a mini disc player.
1: Yeah, that you were cool, man. You were ahead of the curve. The mini
0: disc player had its time It was about a two year window that it was cool.
1: And then Apple came a call in. And so, to uh, take a step back at at this landscape, if you were Steve Jobs and you wanted to enter this space, um, because as Steve Jobs, you are a lover of music. It's in his DNA. (laughs) That's right. Frankly. Mm -hmm. It sounds like the the origin stories of the iPod were Steve Jobs wanting an Apple made device, uh, a piece of hardware that would complement their iTunes software jukebox. Of course, there were, there were a couple hardware people inside Apple who could have tackled this. Um, some of these names have become more infamous over the years, um, but it was John Rubinstein who Jobs tasked to make this device, make this personal music player uh, a piece of hardware that we can synchronize with our iTunes software and allow people to take their tunes with them on the go. But Rubenstein uh, couldn't do this all by himself, of course. And um, this is a story that I think has been told in a lot more detail since Macworld's 10-year anniversary special on the iPod's history, mm-hmm. um, because John Rubenstein went out and uh, recruited Tony Fidel, who was coming off of General Magic, which we have also talked about on our podcast. Um, and there was a great tweet from the founder and CEO of Stripe, Patrick Collison, earlier in uh, 2020, where he was interviewing Tony Fidel, and he basically compressed the iPod development timeline. <laughs> Emphasis on compressed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it fits in a tweet, it fits in a screenshot attached to a tweet. But still, um, the first week of January 2001, Fidel got his first phone call from Rubinstein at Apple. And uh, as we will get into, by November, they were shipping devices to customers. That is quick.
0: Absolutely bananas! Like I think of any of the kind of work that I've done in my adult life, like someone comes to you in January and says, "Like we would like a website by November," and there's like lots of sucking air through teeth and going, "Hmm, (laughs) don't know if we can hack it. That's awfully quick."
1: Yeah. And then to think of a hardware product without even, like, an idea or a prototype or uh, a mock-up to go from nothing to manufactured and shipping.
0: The design brief was small, place music. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it's it's totally wild to think about. Um, I mean, of course, the flip side of this is that if you think about what the people who worked on this project clearly had to sacrifice— to make the iPod come into existence. Mm. You know, if you, there's a, there's another interview with Fidel uh, at the computer history museum that we'll link. And he talks about this and he says, I think it was in this context It might've been in one of his other startup contexts, but I think it was with the iPod, you know, like they were eating all their meals at work. He said, working a hundred, 120 hour weeks, but he also framed it as being like a, you know, relatively fresh 20-something with no attachments who was willing to throw himself into a project like this. And there is no doubt that he was handsomely compensated on the other end for it. So in one respect, I'm like, labor conditions like this should not exist ever. <laughs> right. On the other hand, the people who entered into creating the iPod, they d- He tells some other stories about how they clearly didn't know what they were getting into, Mm -hmm. but they knew that they were getting into a Steve Jobs pet project, and anyone in Silicon Valley knew what that meant. And it meant the kind of intense focus and launch or bust kind of attitude that can get you from zero to a a polished hardware project in nine
1: months, 10 months. And speaking of like pretty much zero to shipping, uh, the things that we know about the prototypes and the, the, the design process that went along the way, at some points, they were pretty rudimentary, much closer to zero than they were to shipping.
0: Oh yeah, definitely. So apparently the first physical version of anything that was supposed to become an iPod was a styrofoam model that Fidel made and put, I guess like little metal weights in to estimate how much the final product would weigh. Uh, but that was apparently holding that in his hand was a really key moment on the project for jobs of thinking that it was viable and that it was going forward.
1: Yeah. I think there's an anecdote, uh, embedded in that story that's that he had come up with three prototypes of of different sizes and different like fishing weights glued to the back of them it's like a pinewood derby car (laughs) yeah and he said i saved the the obviously the best the most like pleasing balanced one for last and i had it um hidden under some kind of like bamboo bowl So, like the first two were kind of put out there. They weren't my best ones, but I saved the best for last and kind of revealed it in a little bit of showmanship. And he's like, Of course, Jobs chose the third one.
0: Well, and of course, he reacted to that kind of showmanship. It's the kind of thing that he would love to do on stage himself. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're going to talk about various iPod launches later, but when the iPods were being launched was right in the era of the Steve Jobs keynote where. He would announce something and show it to the audience and go, look at this. This is great. Now let's talk more about it. And only after he had already shown the Apple solution would he start putting competitors up on the screen and go like, ah, Sony, they've got this thing. I forget what it's called. It's crap.
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking of the um, the original iMac launch in 98 where, I mean, like the design was far and away, the thing about the iMac. And it was later compared to uh, like a PC tower with a monitor, external speakers, external microphone, uh, keyboard and mouse. And they had like purposefully tried to make the cables snaking out to each of those components (laughs) as visible and disorganized as possible.
0: We've got the kid and the dog setting up the iMac. (laughs) While
1: (laughs) While the PhD struggles.
0: Yep, pretty much. Yeah, (laughs) It also makes sense that these people who had this compatible kind of working style and compatible sensibilities. Like, if they didn't both think that way, they would have had a lot harder time on this project. Absolutely. One of the other people who was also heavily involved in this early design was Phil Schiller. Um, The the way that Fidel tells the stories, it sounds like they were just like, I mean, I guess it was Infinite Loop. Like, they're just running around Infinite Loop like, you know like it's a comedy movie trying to <laughs> <laughs> trying to jury rig up this music device because the story of how the famous rotary wheel uh that launched on the first iPod came to be is apparently there was this phone that was maybe in Jobs's office or in an office nearby and it was a bang and olufsen phone of course right like the the fancy speaker company phone. (laughs) yeah, (laughs) The brand that we've all kind of agreed is like high-end, but maybe not the best.
1: (laughs) Looks better than it functions.
0: Right. Um, But this device, it was a handset phone, but it had an LCD display on it. And there was apparently a way that it had multiple speed dial entries where you could enter people's name, which was probably about as fun as it was for me to enter track names into my mini-disc player, <laughs> one character at a time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but once they were in there, it had this jog shuttle kind of control, uh, or you know, like a jog wheel where you could quickly spin through them and select them. And that interaction uh was something that jobs had noticed. And like apparently Schiller runs out of the room and like unplugs the phone and brings it in and points at it and goes yeah, but can you make it with one of these? And, like, what's he going to say? No. <laughs> <laughs> In that interview, he had specifically said that before that, he kind of figured that, like, a five-way control, up, up, down, left, right, select, would be sufficient for navigating around an interface of the complexity that they were imagining for a music player with, you know, hierarchical menus where you could browse by song or album or playlist and maybe folders like that that's about as advanced as it would get uh but just something about the aesthetics of that design uh was in jobs's mind at the time and that's all you need for something to show up in an apple product in the year
1: 2001 So we've got Tony Fidel, who's kind of nailed down the basic structure, the form, the weight, how it feels in the hand, how much space it takes up in your pocket. Schiller's added the uh, the click wheel, the jog dial. Um, but of course, Johnny Ive has his hand in kind of the final fit and finish of this as well. And the iPod was very much like a designed object, one of the like the quintessential Johnny Ive designs. The white plastic with the kind of double shot clear plastic on top of it, the polished stainless steel back and all kind of glued together. I know that there are like there are tabs that are that have tight tolerances, but this wasn't like a, um, a mid vintage or I guess even today uh, iPhone where you see the little pentalobe screws in the bottom. Everything just kind of magically came together in this like very designed object.
0: Right, and any other kind of device in this same category. Like, you know there's going to be some Phillips screws on there. Yeah. Just any kind of, like, handheld consumer electronic device. Like, I mean, recently, like, I have, like, a Super Nintendo controller, and the buttons weren't working very well. So it's got Phillips screws on the back. Like, I opened it up, and I cleaned the contacts. Like, because it's, like, that's it, right? You know? Nice. But there is no such point of entry on an iPod.
1: It wasn't a design that was just kind of handed down to Johnny Ive in his sleep, though. Uh, He obviously took some inspiration. There is a pocket radio from 1958 in the Museum of Modern Art, no less, uh, designed by, of course, Dieter Rams, the Braun T3 pocket radio, which uh, looks like an iPod on its side. It's got a a square area that represents its speaker, and then it's got a, a single circular control for setting the frequency you're tuned to. I find
0: it almost purely coincidental that it's oriented on its side like that in the Mm -hmm. MoMA picture. Like The the numbers around the dial are circular. There is no definitive orientation on this device, and obviously, like speakers work whichever way you set them down. Mm -hmm. So yeah, just rotate this thing 90 degrees and um, replace the speaker with a screen, and it looks an incredible lot like... Uh, like an iPod, but on the other hand, the ipod's design really relied on its simplicity uh I remember uh when I was in college I took a three d modeling course and uh one of the things I did for like a week long project like a short project was I modeled a then current generation of iPod because it was like I knew how to like make a rounded rectangular solid and then like add and subtract things to it. That was all we had learned in the course so far. <laughs> and they're like, find an object in the real world that you could uh, use for your project. I'm like, how about this iPod right here? <laughs> so I think that covers the basic design. But of course, the iPod would not be possible without uh, technology that actually would fit inside said case.
1: That's right. Uh, like you just said, one of the major things that made the iPod click with so many people was its simplicity. But it was that simplicity combined with like an incredible amount of music capacity uh, and the simple way to manage it and find the song you want that like, combined together really was a revelation. Um, there were portable music players that had hard drive-like capacities, but they were using spinning platter, hard drives that were otherwise destined for laptops. These were big things if you wanted big capacity. And later on in the iPods uh, product line, there would be flash memory based iPods and Apple would make some strategic move where they bought like the world's supply of flash memory for a couple production cycles. Um, A similar thing actually happened with the original iPod. John Rubinstein was visiting Toshiba and they showed him this upcoming product of a, I think it's a 1.8 inch spinning hard drive. So much smaller than even the miniaturized ones for laptops. And, you know, this is this is during the very short product development window for the iPod. And he's like, this is it. We got it. We can, we can build the shape around this thing. And he's like, we'll take them all. We have to have all of them. <laughs> and so there's this story that comes out of Walter Isaacson's biography of Steve Jobs, where Rubenstein's like calling Apple headquarters from Toshiba in Japan, and is like, uh, can I just get a kind of blank check for ten million dollars ish? And they're like, for for what? For, for the iPod. It's gonna it's gonna make the iPod possible. Sure. And so they bought out the stock of these tiny tiny hard drives from Toshiba, and that was like critical component number one for making the iPod possible.
0: Right. Again, because we have to remember that. It was absolutely not the case that Apple had two hundred fifty billion dollars in the bank at this point. Yeah, they were maybe you know they, they were past the edge of bankruptcy thanks to the iMac, but like there was not some huge rainy day fund where you could just go, oh yeah, just just buy a a, a you know whole uh
1: whole barge full of hard drives. And uh, a fun note about this hard drive would is uh, seven years later. Um, After the introduction of the iPod, when iPods and other portable devices have moved on to uh, the previously mentioned flash memory, Apple still had a use for these tiny, tiny spinning hard drives, and it was for the original MacBook Air. The original MacBook Air was running an iPod hard drive.
0: And they proved that uh, those hard drives were not fit for general computing. They were great storage devices, but what you really needed for... A music player was a dumb storage device that you could just read MP3s off of at a higher bitrate than what the MP3s were encoded at, which was not that hard because they were topping out at 128 Mm -hmm. in those days. And for the operating system, you were going to run it as an embedded system where like, it was firmware. You are running that off of a chip that is not the hard drive, as far as I know. And because of that, the operating system is snappy. Now, try to run uh, Mac OS X Tiger off of one of those hard drives, and you will be in for a world of hurt. <laughs> However, the original iPod did have some uh, some technology that was incredibly fast for its day, because one of the other technologies that made the experience plausible, let's say, and certainly better than the competition, was the inclusion of FireWire on the original iPod. This was one of the times that Apple was able to double down on a otherwise possibly foolish hardware decision that they had made to great success. Because... FireWire at the time never seemed particularly successful, and in retrospect, really feels like a strange bit of I.O. that Apple put on computers for a while. But its key was speed, and we were still effectively, I think, in the USB 1.0 era. 1.5 megabits per second. With USB 1.1, they got up to 12 megabits per second. Which means that that's going to be your max for getting those music files onto any other kind of device. Mm-hmm. And if you're a, a very diligent Napster user, <laughs> you're going to have amassed hundreds of megabytes of files, maybe gigabytes of files that you want to take with you. And you're going to sit there for a very long time to get those across on USB 1.0. Mm-hmm. So FireWire was was key to saying, OK, look, you're not going to part of hooking this up to a Mac, which basically all their Macs had FireWire ports at that time, at least all the new ones that were coming out. Maybe if you had a, a few years old iMac, not so much, <laughs> um, but um, it meant that you were going to be able to get music onto your device at a reasonable speed. Probably to the point, I don't remember if this happened actually, but I know in general that there were iTunes or related demos where Steve Jobs would actually sit there during for a sync process to take place. <laughs> Something like 30 seconds of a progress bar, which just seems interminable when there's an auditorium of people waiting.
1: And it's silent.
0: But, you know, then he would stand up and say, well, on the competition, that would have taken 10 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> and like I said, the music is coming over from your Mac, which is, of course, running iTunes, the only way to get music onto an iPod. Um this was one of the things where Audion was hanging on after they lost out being acquired by Apple because it was just like a personal choice of like, oh, do I was I a SoundJam user? Do I like what Apple's done with it and iTunes better? No, I've still just got like a folder full of MP3 files and Audion is great. Look at all these custom faces. They're so cool. <laughs> and then when the iPod came out and said, this is not going to do what the other, uh, like flash-based drives, do and just appear as a USB drive that you can slowly copy things to in the Finder. This is only going to appear in iTunes, and if you want to get music on there, we don't care how you play your music the rest of the time, but it better be in your iTunes library. And that was such a classic Apple lock them together hardware and software move. Uh, and the other thing that this let them do was it let the team that had been put on this impossible task de-scope some of the work. Because they basically said, look, the, the iPod device itself is strictly for playback. That is it. You can choose what's, what list of songs you want to play. You can choose whether it's shuffled or repeated. You can change the volume. Finding those songs, organizing those songs, naming those songs, reading those songs, putting them into playlists, all of that is a task for the Mac and a task specifically for iTunes.
1: This is also the era of the Mac being pitched as the digital hub, Mm -hmm. where that's where all your, your creativity, all your work happens, and all your devices feed into it and feed from it. And that actually plays into the final piece of the development puzzle where we've talked about uh, the conception of the idea, the kind of design of it as a physical object, the necessary components and technologies to put inside it to make it possible, but you got to still give it a name. And we already have the iMac, where the I stands for internet. And what are you going to call this thing? Like I said, like think creative or nomad or someone had the jukebox. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there were players out there that had music, uh, implying names for their products,
0: and there were ones that just had nonsensical names like the Diamond
1: Rio. Oh, that's right, I had a Diamond Rio, a 32 megabyte Diamond Rio. I think it held ten songs.
0: <laughs> you could fit half a Smash Mouth album on there.
1: Um, so there, there were Apple has of course had um, long-standing, fruitful relationships. No pun intended with marketing firms TWA, Chiat Day. Um, and it turns out that in the case of the iPod, uh, it was a freelance copywriter named Vinny Chieco who gave the iPod its name, um, having been inspired by the digital hub marketing strategy. Um, and so he was thinking about, <laughs> instead of a Mac, think about a spaceship and the spaceship is the central hub and things come and go. Things are fed into the spaceship. Things are ejected from the spaceship. What are some of those things Pods, like a shuttle pod in Star Trek. I'm
0: playing too much Escape Velocity.
1: <laughs> but yeah, um,
0: it does feel innate, like a name that has been around forever, but it did have to come from somewhere. Um, it's, it's a good name, of course. <laughs> like, it was great for branding. Everybody knew what an iPod was. Um, some people thought that things that weren't iPods were iPods they became so popular eventually. But it did absolutely suffer from the um I, I, I just don't understand this. Like I'm a right, I'm a language person. I'm mm-hmm. an editor. Like very, very detail oriented. Once the iPod became popular, nobody knew how to capitalize iPod. <laughs> nobody had this problem with iMac for some reason. Even the people who um who would tell you that you had to use your Mac computer mm-hmm. in all caps. Like once the iMac came out like camel case. Okay. Yeah. The, the i's lowercase, fine, whatever. N- no big deal. iPod like broke people's brains though, <laughs> <laughs> in a way that like eBay and iMac didn't, mm-hmm. you know, I think, I think it was the iPod that really got, um, people on Wikipedia go like, uh, Something about the way that Wikipedia is coded is that the like, page titles are case sensitive and but have to start with an uppercase letter. Mm. They're like, "Oh, we need to fix this because of the iPod." It looks ridiculous. Um, but yeah, I would go to, you know, I would go to events where I was like working with high school students and there would be rules for the event and it would talk about your iPods. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or your capital I, all lowercase pods. Like, nobody got it. It was very strange. <laughs> but as I said, it didn't really matter if people couldn't capitalize the name of the iPod. People totally got what the product was. And I think that all commenced with the initial launch and marketing campaign.
1: So this was October 23rd, 2001. Uh, we've talked about this uh, a couple times on our show once primarily because it took place in Apple's Town Hall Auditorium at the Infinite Loop campus. Um, but another thing about the state, we've been talking about this year, 2001, uh, the entirety of its development cycle was in the year 2001. And uh, specifically, October of 2001 is uh, a difficult time to launch a product, um, to really to, to do much of anything, uh, especially in America, coming a month after the events of September 11th. One particular way that this affected Apple was, of course, air travel was shut down in this country for a a good amount of time immediately afterwards. Maybe this is a little bit of a a, a tall tale uh, embellished, but uh, apparently one of the final flights um, allowed into America before September 11th carried the first functioning prototypes of the iPod, like had, had... things gone a little bit differently. uh, It may have been delayed so much longer. We would have been recording this episode two weeks later. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Thinking back to that launch event too, like so many of the town hall events, it seems in retrospect, severely understated for the impact that this product would eventually have for the company and pretty much for like personal music consumption. So at this small
0: event... Uh, in town hall, uh, the iPod was unveiled as an entirely new concept, right? An entirely new hardware category for Apple, yet part of this uh, digital hub strategy that was already underway. And uh, its features, specs, price were all announced. Uh, it had those magical little Toshiba hard drives in them at the capacity of five gigabytes. And the product would be launching for the price of 399 us dollars. And even just thinking back now, like that's a pretty good deal for an Apple product, especially because I was thinking, what computer was I using as my primary computer at the time? Well, I was using my family's Power Macintosh G3 desktop, which had a four-gigabyte hard drive.
1: Oh, wow.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So the whole thing would fit on the original iPod. So they really were not skimping on size. And the flash-based players that they were going up against, which were the best of the of the bunch because of their portability. Mm-hmm. Were there maybe like 128 megabyte
1: models? Maybe, but that would have been like astronomical.
0: Right. I feel like they almost all were either 32, or if you sprung for the big one, you got
1: 64. Right. And even the 32 megabyte one I got, I think retailed for $129.
0: Right. So if you're thinking about that, okay, like, I don't even care about the user experience, the size of it in my pocket, how well it's integrated with iTunes, any of that. Throw that all out the window, <laughs> and you're getting like a hundred times more for less than three times the price. Yeah. And that was the thing that was became the original iPod's tagline, selling line. It was capacity in a small package. It was a thousand songs in your pocket. And the notion was that nobody else had the device that you were really willing to wedge into your pocket (laughs) that had a hard drive big enough for that. And only Apple was providing it. And they were providing it at, yes, a luxury price, but also a compelling price.
1: That, of course, didn't stop uh, plenty of haters from voicing their negative <laughs> opinions. And I think the the most famous one, which has become somewhat of a meme for people to uh, to reference as like a knee jerk negative reaction to something that's probably actually going to be pretty good, was uh Commander Taco at Slashdot. Was he a founder or just like a really popular user? I
0: have no idea. <laughs>
1: All I know is that he was like a a big voice on Slashdot at the time. Also, 2001, Slashdot is one of the big websites covering technology. Um, And it's just uh, his his simple um, commentary on the link to the announcement of the iPod is, no wireless, less space than a nomad. Lame.
0: (laughs) (laughs) This is like a a Robert Criscow review of the iPad.
1: Yeah, it's like the original uh, claim chowder stuff.
0: Oh, but this is claimed chowder that aged like a fine wine. <laughs> <laughs> it's been in the cellar for 20 years and it's all the more rich for th- th-
1: the nuances that have developed around it. <laughs> you can Google this phrase in quotes so you get like the exact match and you'll see people referencing it for like every major Apple product announcement of the last 20 years.
0: Yeah, and like no wireless. What was he hoping for? Like, we were still putting infrared ports on computers <laughs> then. Yeah, I'm not sure. You could transmit your music in less than real time, It'd take you two hours to get one album.
1: I don't even know if Bluetooth was a big deal back then.
0: No, it wasn't. Yeah, so, I yeah, no idea. I guess Bluetooth technically existed. It first came out in 98, but like, no. No, no, no!
1: Yeah, we weren't wearing AirPods.
0: <laughs> I regret to inform the taco of how bad his <laughs> steak was.
1: Well, it's it's uh, encoded forever in time for being so bad.
0: Yeah. So maybe, uh, of course, we were Apple fanboys mm-hmm. at the time. Still are. Yep. Love it. Uh, I thought it might be good to talk about our first iPod experiences. Yeah. So I was I was rocking my Sony Mini Disc player, which was. It was probably in the $300 to $400 price range as well. Plus, I had to buy mini-discs for it. So, eh, okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, that was the one thing that it had going, was that it was infinitely expandable. Like I could just keep buying more discs. But my first iPod experience, I was not going to rush out and buy one because I had neither the money nor the inclination with an already pretty good portable music setup, like customizable portable music setup. As opposed to, like, a disc man, where you have to carry around a binder of CDs. Yeah. So I didn't get a first-generation iPod, but uh, some family friends of ours did, uh, the friends that we do Thanksgiving with. So I guess this must have been, like, that
1: November. So just, like, a month or even a couple weeks after they started shipping.
0: Like, right after it came out. And when we would go to stay with them, like, they would, like, shuffle around bedrooms so that, like, there were enough guest rooms for us. I was staying in the bedroom of uh, my friend uh, who got the iPod. He was also in high school at the time. And he had, like, left it on his nightstand. And I'm, like, going to bed and, like, I see it. I'm like, (laughs) well look at this. Yeah. Like I'm not going to do anything with it. It's like, I'm. it's time for bed. Like I'm, yeah. but like I had to pick it up and like try it. Like I didn't have any headphones with me. You know, they were like in a backpack somewhere else in the house. Like I wasn't going to listen to any music on it, but I wanted to do like the guy English thing of like, get the iPhone and just, uh you know, just swiped on lock because he was in Canada and couldn't get any, like couldn't activate it. Like uh-huh. I had no headphones and an iPod. So I was just going to like tool around and see what I can do with it. So like I went through all the menus and saw like how the backlight worked and like play pause and all of that. And then I couldn't figure out how to turn it off <laughs> <laughs> because for all of the iPod's simplicity and design, they did the thing that Apple loves to do
1: have one fewer button than you need. Mm-hmm. And what is it? Hold menu? I think hold menu is backlight and hold play pause is off. It was press and hold some button and I did not figure it out. (laughs) (laughs) So
0: I just sat it back down on the nightstand. I didn't know if it was going to like automatically turn off or just run all night until it lost all of its charge. But I went to sleep.
1: (laughs) I had a similar experience the first time uh, I, I had an iPod to play with. And I was convinced. I convinced myself that the hold switch was somehow on and off, even though it, it says hold. It doesn't say <laughs> on and off. But it's the only thing that functions like some kind of switch.
0: We're going to get to the legacy in a moment, but I'm just thinking about these design choices. Like, where I said, is it hold menu? I'm like, yeah, because last night when I went to turn off my Apple TV, I like pressed and hold the TV button, which is like parallel to that, and then it, everything turns off because CEC actually works for me.
1: Yeah, CEC Unicorn.
0: yeah. Oh, and the other thing uh, that you said, Brian, with the hold switch,
1: mm-hmm.
0: yeah, it it said hold on it, so that you knew you knew what it did. But how was that switch designed? When hold was activated, there was a little bit of orange that you could see underneath it. And to this day, every iPhone has a switch that, if you turn it, has a little bit of orange underneath that means that it's on on the vibrate silent mode.
1: Every iPhone I've ever owned has been permanently in that position. (laughs) A little throwback to the iPod. Uh, My first experience, um, it came even before I had uh, enough time to play with one to to fumble around with the hold switch, is uh, we had a classmate in our grade who was also very much into technology, very much into Apple, and uh, was actually facilitating my personal music experience at the time because he was the first person... I knew who had a CD burner and he was running a nice little business where he would hand out like a a couple sheets of MP3s that he had on his computer. And he's like, make your CD, give me, you know, 10 bucks or something. And I will burn your like 20 track custom. Now that's what I call music basically. (laughs) And and give it to you tomorrow. And I had like five or six of these before I had uh, an MP3 player or... An iPod or, or a CD burner and anything like that of my own. Um, so I was listening to a disc man <laughs> with with the uh, CDs from Samer, our friend Samer, and he was the first person I know who bought one. And it must have been in the the following spring because I remember he brought it out to the front lawn of our high school after school and showed it to everybody. And the biggest thing I remember is he was very finicky; like no one was allowed to to like hold it for too long. He just wanted to show everyone and he had the earbuds that came with it and back then they shipped with i think two sets of little protective black foam to like cover the the hard earbud part
0: of the material that all like headphone coverings were made in the 80s 90s and early 2000s that disintegrated upon contact
1: yeah and if you were unfortunate enough to like catch some in the the process of decomposing you could see how your like your ear grease had turned brown. Oh, no. Yeah. It was just bad all around. And I remember someone uh like maybe he, Sammer was distracted, but someone had it long enough and they took the black pieces off because I like you said, like that was the default. Headphones should have it on. So they thought that putting the naked earbuds in their ears was like a courtesy to him because he was going to put the foam back on and then they wouldn't have any kind of cross contamination. Uh but he, he was not pleased with when he discovered it. I I think that was the right move. I I agree with that. And it's interesting now that Apple ships earbuds, or I guess they don't actually with phones, but for a while, you know, Apple was, I think cited as like the biggest speaker manufacturer or shipper Mm. in the world because you got two in the earbuds with like every product that they sold.
0: Right. Like four speakers with every iPhone.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, it's long since been that if you stick with the uh, the the basic earpods or the air buds, <laughs> this terminology has changed. Um, any of the pack in stuff, you we've long since gone accustomed to just you just put them naked in your ears. The plastic is in your ears. There's no foam uh, protecting the outside. Well, it took Apple
0: a while to get that design right because those original ones. They were uncomfortable with the padding. They were unusable without <laughs> the padding. Yeah, they were very hard. And, th- like, I know that there are... Th- there's a minority of people now who say, like, a uh, you know, non-pro uh AirPod. Like, oh, that's uncomfortable. Like, oh, I can't put it in my ear. Um, It's not the right shape. But they've vastly improved that over... um just uh, stick this circle in your ear. It'll be fine.
1: (laughs) And uh, speaking of those white earbuds dangling out of your ears, the white circles and the white cords, uh, let's talk about the iPod's legacy. We've been talking about that original iPod, uh, its development process, its launch in 2001. But of course, everyone knows that there was more than just that one iPod and everything that it influenced and came afterwards.
0: Yeah, especially like... If you look back at that original iPod, it's big. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a a chunky boy. It was, I think, compared to a deck of cards, Mm -hmm. was the the main analogy. And that is too thick (laughs) (laughs) for something that you really want to carry in your pocket all the time. Uh, So, of course, there were further generations of the uh, full-size iPod that still... Slimmed it down into, uh, I don't know, Johnny Ive would say, it, you know, it, it, they found the essence of the product or something like that. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> and there were refinements to the control scheme, although uh, the general appearance and general way that you operate an iPod stayed the same. Um, I mentioned the rotary dial on the first one. I think many people forget that the original iPod had a physically rotating wheel. Mm -hmm. And when it went click, click, click around, that was because physical parts were touching each other, not because sound was being played out of a speaker. (laughs) But quickly that went away in favor of, at first, the purely capacitive touch wheel. And then, I believe it was with the fourth generation, the then- standard and famous click wheel Mm -hmm. which had both the capacitive surface and the the ability to depress it so it took them four generations and then they have completely um completely married the design that um that fidel had up front was like oh we'll just have like buttons (laughs) like yeah well what if the buttons were the wheel
1: (laughs) as far as apple is concerned there are six ish generations of the full-size iPod. There's obviously the one, the original one, the second revision that had the capacitive wheel, the third one, which we will discuss the fourth one with the first click wheel, the video one, the photo, the photo was somewhere in the middle of the, between the fourth and the video. Um, And then the, the sixth generation is when they were like, all right, this is just like Coca-Cola. This is iPod classic. We have so many other variants <laughs> out there now. We're going to call the sixth generation, the classic. And, uh, Getting Kind of skipping ahead a little bit, talking about the iPod's legacy, there is still a very active community online. The one I know is the iPod subreddit that is dedicated to preserving iPods of all vintages and all uh, product lines, Um, maybe modding them, swapping out spent batteries, swapping out the tiny Toshiba hard drives for some kind of flash storage. And they like to classify the full size iPod line as having seven generations because of all the variants. Like Ed said, the, the photo iPod when the fourth generation went color or itty bitty little variants in the later classic generations that put a limit on how much the, the chip that Ed also talked about can physically process. <laughs> some, some have better than others.
0: There are seven generations, but there is a fifth and a half and sixth and a half generation. Exactly. This is like, um, I keep getting recommended this YouTube video, and I've never clicked on it, but the, the thumbnail and title says something like, how many Mario games are there? It's about 18. I promise this is an interesting question. <laughs> <laughs> totally the same kind of yeah. thing that you could do for the iPods here. How many iPod generations are there? There's about seven. Yeah of the Of the one plus right. the others, yeah, like total theres about uh, yeah, I think actually, in the Fidel interview, the person who introduced him gave like stats on the the how the iPod had done over time, and I think they said eighteen different mm. generations or versions that sounds about right, and that would have to be across all the lines,
1: yeah, speaking of those lines, the first variant of iPod was the iPod mini. And this is actually where the click wheel started um, because they had to miniaturize their control scheme to fit on a physically smaller product. And they're like, oh, this is it. This is the ideal form. We're going to bring it back to the big boys. Um, and then, of course, Apple also had to get into the Flash music player game and that they started that with the iPod Shuffle. You mentioned the Mini. You
0: also mentioned that it only had two generations. Mm, mm-hmm. The shortest lived iPod, the best selling iPod. And here here we go. We're having another fall music event. Apple has started a tradition at this point, usually around this time of the year. The leaves are turning. It's time to get some a music event from Apple. And here comes Steve Jobs to tell you that the second-generation iPod Mini is the most successful music player on the planet, which is why they're canceling it. <laughs> yeah,
1: this is one of the all-time great keynotes.
0: I think this is my absolute favorite product announcement, better than the MacBook Air in the envelope. Steve Jobs says, uh, point the camera up at me here. (laughs) And then he gestures down toward his pocket and he says, Now this pocket's been the one that your iPod's gone in, traditionally. The iPod and the iPod mini fit great in there. You ever wonder what this pocket's for? (laughs) I've always wondered that. Well, now we know, because this
1: is the new iPod Mini.
0: Yeah, just that realization. is that The crowd kind of goes, no. He put it in the coin pocket. Yeah, I, I'm sure he had to find the right pair of jeans to have a deep enough coin pocket mm-hmm. that it wouldn't peek out for the, like, he'd been up there for a while already. Um, But just like so perfect. Mm-hmm. You, know, you wh- How could you possibly imagine that we were killing our most successful product? Well, it's so much better and so much smaller that I have it hidden on my person and you didn't even know it. Yeah. <laughs> One of the fascinating things, though, as he talks about the original Nano in that launch is they wanted to make it as small as possible. One of the limiting factors on how small they made it was they wanted to keep the then standard 30 pin dot connector on it. So firewire went away after what like one two generations of the of the big boy iPod mm-hmm. and uh, they introduced the dot connector uh, originally with those like like grabby things mm-hmm. so that you couldn't unplug it during the sync process yep. and and brick it because like that piece of the hardware software system was fragile. Uh, And then eventually they got better about that and got rid of the grabby things. (laughs) Um, But they wanted the Nano to work with all of the existing iPod accessories, because by now it was successful enough that there were quite a lot of them. So their design limitation was they had to fit the dock connector and the eighth of an inch headphone jack on the bottom edge of the device. And that was it. There was like a millimeter between them and a millimeter on either side of them. That was the whole thing. And of course, the, um, the 30 pin connector had a much longer history than that going all the way until uh, obviously it appeared on the iPhone, several generations of iPhone. And of course there was much consternation in the world (laughs) when Apple eventually replaced it so that you didn't have to like, didn't accidentally get one of those grabby connectors out of your bag of cords and like throw your iPhone across the room (laughs) trying to pull it out. Um, They replaced it with lightning. And so that was so much further down the line. But the, the iPod connector not only was standard for the iPod, but became like a universal standard. It happened to me this year. The Year of Our Lord 2021. <laughs> I went to a hotel and on the bedside there was a clock radio with a 30-pin dot connector on it. Come on. <laughs> it has not yet been replaced. It is useless at this point. Unfortunately.
1: Um, just like lightning was uh the, the final port thing and and kind of something that was primarily put to benefit the iPhone and then the iPod kind of followed suit. The final product line of iPod can be thought of in a similar way. The iPod Touch is basically an iPhone without the phone. The iPhone came first and then the iPod Touch uh, came after. And I think for like the first one or two generations of the iPod Touch, it existed in this weird space where it was actually faster as a CPU before there were even Apple Silicon, Apple uh, CPUs. You could get a a faster portable touchscreen device if you got the iPod touch by like a couple megahertz. And they were so
0: slim because they didn't have to fit any of the phone antenna hardware in there.
1: Or a camera module.
0: Yeah, right? So there was just less stuff in them and they were able to make them tiny, tiny in terms of their thickness. And so they felt like a really pleasing and futuristic device yeah and it helped that they came out like right on the heels of the corresponding iphone generations i think that if it had been more of uh like the ipod touch is the is the iphone se or or worse kind of what we've got into now <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. um then it would not have been a hit but when it went up against um a very expensive iPhone. And the fact that, uh, especially in the United States, it was a huge pain to change your phone service. And and you needed to be on AT&T to have an iPhone. Um, it made the original iPod Touch uh, a very compelling project uh, product.
1: Another funny thing that seems so antiquated now about the first couple iPod Touch generations is is that you had to pay Apple either $10 or $20 to upgrade the operating system, which was also the only way to upgrade any of the built in apps?
0: I still don't understand this. I think people tried to explain it on the internet. They said that it was something to do with accounting laws in the United States. And I, I fail to understand, <laughs> but it, it was, it was how they did it. Yep. <laughs> the thing that I remember about the launch of the touch most was the original ad, mm, mm-hmm. which, was for one, a great ad. Um, For two, had a great song, which was requisite for an iPad ad or iPod ad at that point. That's right. And three had a great story. So this is 2007. YouTube has existed for like a year and a half. Right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And um, someone hears about the iPod touch Knows this song. Uh, the name of the song is Music
1: is My Hot Hot Sex by CSS. Which is not the visual web design language. It's like Cansei Ser Sexy or something Portuguese. Yeah, they're tired
0: of being sexy and also a web technology. Perfect for an Apple ad. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's a British teenager, Nick Haley. Heard about the iPod Touch. Knew this song, which has the line.
1: My music is where I'd like to.
0: And far racier lyrics, (laughs) Uh, but cut it together very carefully, Um, did it in the style of the original iPhone ads where there's the fingers like showing you how to use it, but more upbeat and just threw it up on YouTube. And then he gets an email from Apple. Hi, would you like to come to California and turn this into a real television ad? Which, he thought that uh, it was a joke, <laughs> uh, but he followed up and found out that it was real. He traveled to the United States for the first time. They made the ad with T- TBWH at day, and it ran on TV. Saw it a bunch of times, uh, and it was one of the great, like, mic drop Apple ads, especially because it ends on that line in the song.
1: And as long as we're talking about TV ads ad campaigns in general for the iPod, we, we have to talk about the kind of the the hottest period of the iPod right before the iPhone came out and, you know, the iPod touch as a result, uh, when the iPod was just the, the music listening device and the iconic TV print billboard ad campaign that is uh, silhouettes of people dancing to their music and their white earbud cords going down to their white iPod device set to whatever the the trendiest song the trendiest indie song is of the moment like um, one of my favorite tv shows at this time was the oc oh hell yeah which also had a reputation for if your song is played on this it's like purposeful it's just as good as getting airplay on radio stations the apple iPod commercials similarly would like make bands in the middle 2000s oh yeah there, there, maybe there's a theme here with like slightly racy lyrics, but the, the quote unquote indie rock song that I associate with, uh, this ad campaign is Jerk It Out by the Caesars.
0: Yeah. I never quite knew what that song was about, but
1: like, <laughs> <laughs> it has a weird title. That's for sure. And so in 2003, uh, this ad campaign is already established and, um, Since we're talking about the iPod's legacy, um, it was such a successful, such a pervasive ad campaign that uh, one YouTuber, well, he wasn't a YouTuber back then, but now a prominent YouTuber, Casey Neistat, was able to establish basically his viral online video career by piggybacking on the iPod uh, silhouette campaign with his video called iPod's Dirty Secret in 2003, where basically he would just spray paint the message that iPod's non-replaceable battery dies after, I think he said, 18 months, and would just spray paint that message on top of any print version of uh, the ad he could find in New York City. And somehow that went viral, again, pre-YouTube.
0: He must not have tried very hard to replace his battery, although I guess there was no YouTube tutorial to follow.
1: (laughs) And there were no screws either. You had to have like your little spudger to to pry them open at the seam.
0: Um, but you know, dank pods could get in one of those iPods in like 10 seconds.
1: Yeah, exactly. Talk about a YouTube legacy of the iPod, dank pods. Yes.
0: Um, if you want to hear me talk about dank pods for like 15 minutes, go listen to the first episode of One More Thing, our other podcast, where <laughs> um where I talked about it when they still talked about iPods. They've they've kind of run out of iPods, but um it's a very funny channel with an Australian guy who repairs iPods and similar technology. And rip off iPods and and really bad iPod uh, accessories and the like. There, there's some gems in there.
1: And getting back to this era, the mid-2000s, like pre-iPhone, um, the iPod is like this fixture in culture. Its ads are pervasive. It is kind of like the iconic, the the brand name for a music player, like Kleenexes to tissues. iPods was to music players. iPod. Yeah, all caps. And uh, Apple was pretty much the iPod company. Like, mm-hmm. we're fans of Apple. We knew about PowerBooks and, you know, PowerMax and the iMacs, but Apple was the iPod company. The gigantic, beautiful, gleaming white Apple logos at your mall represented the iPod store, not the Apple store. So much so that in the, the legendary iPhone keynote introduction, one of the three things that the iPhone was going to be was a widescreen iPod with touch controls.
0: Yes, it was. <laughs> the, the funniest part of that description is the word widescreen. Because the iPhone is not widescreen. The iPhone is tall screen. <laughs> and in fact, the more that they've extended the aspect ratio in that direction, the less we use them in horizontal orientation so the notion that that was gonna be the seller but i guess at that point they were pushing the ipod video Mm -hmm. in in the classic form factor and they had launched the um tv shows and movies via the itunes store on web objects on web objects um where where you could uh where you could purchase the last week's episode of Lost in SD for two ninety nine and <laughs> mm-hmm. watch it on your iPod, and I guess it would have like it would have letterboxing because it was not widescreen.
1: Yeah, that's that's my point of uh, including this here is like obviously in hindsight, what a ridiculous way to frame the most popular consumer device of all time um, as a widescreen iPod. But it just shows like how entrenched and how dominant the iPod was in all media. Like you just said, even watching TV on a tiny little screen, or you know, relatively tiny little screen, the iPod was your your everything status device, that so much so that Apple had to frame one-third of the iPhone's selling features as an extension of an iPod.
0: Right. And the rumor fury in the year or two previous to the iPhone is, is Apple going to make an iPod phone, an iPod phone? Are they going to make an iPod phone? Yeah. And of course, that uh, that spawned all kinds of ridiculous rumors and mock-ups that I think mm-hmm. we talked about on the rumors episode. And in more recent years, as um, the development of the original iPhone has become more of a h- y- event... That's far enough in the history, far enough back in history that people have left Apple and are willing to talk about it openly, like Tony Fidel and others. Um, They've talked about that influence of the iPod on the phone and how some of the very first prototypes, even after they went with the multi touch display, was basically just a software mock up of an iPod. On a touchscreen, <laughs> that's right. With like an entry in the iPod menu that said "phone," <laughs> and um, to their great credit, they realized that that was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that they needed to move on from that. And frankly, the fact that they had gotten the multi-touch technology, acquired it, miniaturized it successfully to the size of the iPhone meant that they were not constrained to create a phone that had a click wheel they were able to go beyond that and that was that was really the only thing that was going to knock the iPod off of the top position at Apple and really in consumer electronics period right as famously also announced in the <laughs> in that keynote uh, the iPhone unlike the iPods, ran OS X, whatever the hell that meant. They ran (laughs) iOS. They called it iPhone OS very shortly thereafter. Um, (laughs) But yeah, it was OS X, uh, which meant some of the underlying technologies, you know, foundation and that kind of thing, as opposed to the iPods with click wheels that ran an OS that really wasn't developed by Apple at all. Um, I just learned in the research for this that it had an Apple connection, a very uh, a very typical pattern for having an Apple connection to an Apple product. Uh, someone named Paul Mercer left Apple where he worked, founded a company called Pixo in 1994 uh, to create embedded systems operating systems and they were uh bought back by Apple because <laughs> that looked like a great operating system for the iPod. Mm-hmm. I think there was also some uh like IP or um merger or connection there with Connectix as well. They had Oh some, my goodness. They had, they had something to do with the technology that that uh ran the the iPod OS. And then of course Apple put their um uh classic Apple sheen on it by having it run in uh, twelve
1: point Chicago, and for the the two generations of Mini Espions, uh,
0: yes, yes, Espions came in later.
1: One more kind of uh, iPod legacy touch on Apple as a company is like we said earlier. Steve Jobs had uh, his appreciation and his love for music encoded into his very DNA of his character as a person, um, and it was really the iPod that helped cement that as part of Apple's corporate DNA. When you look at Apple today, uh, you know, they're, they're a a services company and one of their biggest services is Apple Music, which of course they had to acquire from Beats. But, um, another thing we've said is like at one point they were the, the leading, uh, shipper, seller of speakers and they still sell a HomePod mini. They had a HomePod for a while. They had an iPod hi fi for a while. They have a dizzying array of different kinds of headphones or earbuds or synonyms for earbuds and AirPods and maxes and pros, all these kinds of things um, that solidifies their music is still a a tab on apple.com. Yeah. In in no small part because of how much the iPod meant to Apple when it was their dominant product. Um, But it also has led to some interesting relationships directly with musical acts. I'll start with like a light one, um, I think Apple uh, through iTunes was the first digital music provider to uh, have official copies of the Beatles records for sale, which was a big thing if you know the history of Apple Computer versus Apple Core, the Beatles record label. So sue me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but there's another band that has figured into um, Apple and 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 even the iPod specifically. <laughs> Uh, that was a good sigh.
0: <laughs> Is this the part where I get to tell you how much I hate the song Vertigo? <laughs> and how many times it appeared on my television in iPod ads?
1: You can't count
0: to four. You can't, you can't count to four!
1: <laughs> One, two, three, fourteen. I did it. Yeah, we are talking, of course, about U2 and the U2 connection with Apple Music and iPods. <laughs>
0: Uh, yeah. I mean, they had a special edition iPod. Um, maybe even more than me ranting about one of their particular songs I'm not a fan of. Um, got a lot of hate when they had a physical connection <laughs> between, uh, Bono and Tim Cook awkwardly, awkwardly touching fingers on stage and then, um, <laughs> Unleashing a computer virus unlike the world has ever seen, <laughs> depositing a U2 album into the libraries of pretty much everyone who used iTunes.
1: On a more lighthearted note, I think, uh, wasn't it the icon representing artist view in the mm-hmm. iPod and later music app in iOS was the profile view of Bono singing from that commercial that that we all hated? Indeed. Yeah. Apple has a connection with some bands uh some more appreciable than others.
0: Yeah, but I like your your point Brian about Apple being still very much a music company. Um I mean their most recent big acquisition was actually a music Oh, that's right. uh acquisition. They I forget the name of the company but um it was a uh dedicated classical music streaming service and they've announced that they're uh you know one of the one of the things that people have complained about iTunes, like all the way back to iTunes 1.0 is I'm a classical music lover. And no, the artist of this track is not Beethoven. <laughs> uh, you'll, you'll see like when people tweet, um, that, uh, Spotify has announced them that there's a new release from Beethoven. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, I'm like, wow, he, he's st- still dropping albums. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> thought he was dead. <laughs> The company's called Prime Phonic, by the way, and it's being folded into Apple Music. Right,
0: but what what they announced is that they're not going to make it part of the Apple Music app and try to shoehorn it in that way, that they're going to have a dedicated classical music experience name to be determined. Mm-hmm. But that shows that, yes, not only are they still a music company, but they're still an expanding music company, and, um, you know... We're all, uh, we're no longer buying singles off of the iTunes store for Mm -hmm. 99 cents a piece, but many of us are paying through a bundle or 9.99 a month for Apple music, their streaming service, um, to, uh, to quote the line that didn't make it into the original iPod touch ad of all the, the one I got to buy is music (laughs) (laughs) and you're probably going to buy it from Apple. And you're probably going to play it on a widescreen iPod with touch controls. <laughs> I know that there are many pieces of the uh, the iPod's arc and legacy that we have missed. Um, but I think maybe a good way to wrap up this tour of 20 years of iPod history uh, is with maybe our personal favorites of the iPods. Um, probably ones that we owned, because, you know, that's how, that's how you get attached to them. <laughs> that's right. Um but there were so many variations. Um, I think that uh, that everyone has a different kind of iPod that sticks out to them as uh, their best iPod experience. Um, not not to be spoilers, but we've got four different iPods here. <laughs> That's true. Uh, that we're gonna mention. So for me, um, yes, my first iPod was my favorite iPod, mm-hmm. uh, and that was a third gen. So that was when it went to the capacitive controls, the red glow, uh kind of ominous. And I really liked that design. It was some people hated it, I think, because they didn't they didn't find the capacitive controls easy to use. I found I used that iPod on road trips plugged into cassette tape adapter for so long. And yes, like because they were touch controls, like they activated at a, like at a hair's touch. Mm -hmm. But because the buttons were not around the wheel, you could find them without taking your eyes off the road, (laughs) which I found to be super useful. And so I always liked that design. And I think that, yeah, it's worth pointing out at least that it was unique among the iPods of sitting between the rotary wheel and the click wheel and, uh, having that row of four buttons that no other iPod ever did. The other one that I have to say is, um, you know, really top class of second generation nano, mm-hmm. um, just for sheer portability, uh, the full iPod experience in the, you know, best tiniest package that they ever put it in, uh, would be a definite runner up for me.
1: Yep. I am going to, uh, announce my picks. Uh, they both kind of feed off of yours because, uh, I'm in a very similar situation. The first iPod I got was the third generation with the, the four separate capacitive buttons. It was a gift from my parents for graduating high school and they got it from, I guess, the online Apple store because it was engraved with the message from them to me on the back of it. And, uh, so I've obviously, I've kept that iPod since, I guess, 2003. <laughs> <laughs> but i was one of the people you mentioned who once there were different designs i was like oh i don't actually like the four separate buttons i don't like the red lights at night um and i really really liked the the kind of minimalist clean look of the fourth generation which still kept it simple with a black and white display that didn't have the macos 10 aqua progress bar for your music and <laughs> and the kind of uh, nostalgia of 12 point Chicago. So I, um, the fourth generation iPod, I think, is truly my favorite one. And, uh, the fourth generation iPod that I owned kind of in real time, uh, I don't know where that is now, but I have since, um, followed the people like Dank Pods and the iPod subreddit. And I have bought an, uh, a fourth generation iPod from eBay, taken apart. That iPod and the iPod my parents given gave me and uh kind of formed a Frankenstein's monster of Frankenpod <laughs> yeah of uh, a new battery, <laughs> which is crucial um all the the front plate and all the guts of a fourth generation iPod uh and the back plate of the third generation with the message from my parents on it, and I still have that. Oh, that works. It, uh, it's not perfect because the, but little, it, like it holds together. It does. Yeah. There's nice. a little bit of different alignment between the, uh, headphone jack and the tiny, tiny auxiliary remote jack mm. that was next to it on those generations. Um, cause those are on the Chrome backplate, mm-hmm. but the hardware is from the, the fourth gen. So those don't line up great, but everything else, it does work. Nice. Did you go for the flash upgrade? Oh, of course I did. Yeah. There's a, I think an SD card in there and yeah. Oh yeah. It's, it's real nice. (laughs) Um, and I was going to put the second generation nano as my runner up as well, because, um, obviously the first generation nano was incredible. That keynote, it had all the, the design hallmarks of an iPod. Somehow they still had like a Chrome back white plastic and a, a, a tiny bit of clear plastic on top of it. Um, but the second generation nano was way more durable i think it had like twice the battery life and something i something i can't seem to forget and takes space in my brain is that it was the first at least in the nano line to have gapless playback support at a hardware level for listening to your live albums through in sequence and the applause doesn't break between tracks oh
0: yeah yeah yeah
1: and uh for all those reasons that was uh that was like my my runner up ipod for sure Also had a bunch of colors. Yeah, was that the first one? I guess the mini came in colors as well.
0: Yeah. The like first like saturated colors, one of their first uh product red
1: products across the board, and they're still doing that. That's true. That's a really good point. Um, but since you took that, I'm gonna take the first generation shuffle, which was such a novelty. I bought the the lowest capacity one, which I think was five hundred and twelve megabytes. Ninety nine bucks. Ninety-nine bucks. Um, I never used the lanyard that it came with, but there was something so cool about it being like a a thumb drive, basically down to the ability to plug it directly into your computer. You didn't need a cable um, that I I carried that one around for a while, too, when I would uh, like skateboard around campus.
0: Yeah. And like the shuffle was great. One, because it was so cheap. It was entry level. You didn't even have to pay for a screen, (laughs) (laughs) but I think that there's still a certain group of people who appreciate that minimalism. Like I've heard people say like, I want an Apple watch without a screen. Oh, like I just want a fitness band that like doesn't tell me when I get text messages, but like helps me close my rings and I can check it on my phone. It would be like, you know, Apple watch shuffle. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, And it's kind of interesting to ponder why, Apple hasn't gone for something like that in one of its current product lines, especially when, like, the reason they made the shuffle was so that they could sell something for $99, because there was no way they were going to sell anything that was, like, a quote-unquote real iPod for that price without taking a loss on every single one. Yeah. Um, And it's the same thing for the watch. Like, this year they struggled to get the watch price down. It's like, well, didn't put a screen in it, maybe. Yeah. I think it's an interesting parallel.
1: Yeah, you just put a little bug in my ear. Like now I I think I would have one of these screenless Apple Watch fitness trackers. Like the first the glory days of the first round of fitness trackers, I had a jawbone up, which <laughs> compared to what we have now was such a terrible product. In pretty much sure. every way it could be terrible. But at the time that I had it, I really liked it. And it went back to one of the like the key uh success. Strategies for the iPod is you like you said, you offload all the like decision making to a more capable device and you let it mm-hmm. do what it is good at, and yeah, I think there's definitely room for that uh today well, Apple is
0: a huge company, so they could totally make it happen, but they're also very busy with other things
1: <laughs> that's true, yeah,
0: um well, you'll notice one thing that we didn't say anywhere in uh in our tour of iPod history, we didn't mention it going away, <laughs> um, except in terms of its overall popularity, but that's because you can still buy a new iPod today. We didn't even get this with our previous anniversary episode this year with uh, with 20 years of OS ten. They, they just nipped it. They're like, no, it's 11 now. Yeah, yeah. It's not actually OS X anymore. I mean, they had you know, the X and the Mac OS oh, and all right, of that, yeah. but like, and of course, like, no Mac OS hasn't disappeared either. Like, you know, Big Sur and Monterey are just as much Mac OS X as anything else in the, of the previous versions are. But coming back to the iPod, there is a product that has the iPod name that you can buy. New, I mean, I guess new in the sense that nobody else has used the one that you purchase. <laughs> yeah, uh, from Apple.com today, uh, the the iPod Touch still going. Last updated in 2017, I believe. Oh, Apple.com slash iPod. The new iPod Touch, fun at full speed. I uh, you can. Run iOS, maybe the latest version. I don't know.
1: If they're selling it new, probably, yeah. And uh,
0: you can run it in this very thin little package um, at full speed, as long as full speed is however fast an A10 goes.
1: Which, for reference, the iPhones that just came out are A15, so that is a five-year-old processor.
0: Poor little iPod iPod Touch. Don't call it an iTouch.
1: Yeah, that's a... (laughs) That's a bigger mistake, or I'd say a more egregious mistake than uh, all-caps iPod, the iTouch.
0: But it's still there. It's still going. Um, So that's kind of where we have to leave it looking forward into the future is, has the last iPod been created? Or um, could there be more? Heck, okay, Uh, a little behind the scenes here. You're going to hear this right around the time of the anniversary of the iPod announcement. We're recording a week or so in advance and there is an Apple October event <laughs> scheduled in between. Oh man. If they release a new iPod on on Monday
1: at that event, um we'll just have to come back and record another episode. <laughs> I debated putting this uh, this tweet in the notes uh, uh the stock that we used to prepare Somebody who's good at like digging around YouTube metadata saw that Apple's already established a YouTube page for the live stream of their event. And within the SEO keyword metadata is the word iPod. No. But it has also <laughs> been there for every keynote that they've ever done.
0: Oh, okay. <laughs> You you had me go in there for a second.
1: I know that uh it so like the tweet just has that I'll I'll put it in our notes so we can share it. I think the initial tweet just has that announcement and then they were quickly set upon in the replies like it's always there.
0: Oh. <laughs> it's just a synonym for Apple at this point. Yeah. Well, I think that that is a good place to leave it. Uh we've looked back at 20 years of iPod. Uh we can look ahead to see how much longer the iPod has to go. Um, and of course we are all carrying around those uh, iPod inspired devices in our pockets to this day. Mm-hmm. We've only had, you know, an hour and a half here to talk about 20 years of history. So we have gone fast and there is a lot that we have missed. I am sure. And uh, as we said at the top, you know, we're doing these special episodes for big milestones in history um, I just got my, uh, thanks to a friend of the show, Stephen Hackett, just got my Apple hardware calendar for next year, for 2022. Gonna oh. have to go through there and see if there are any big milestones that we got to hit. Um, I'm sure there's probably something in there, but there's no concrete plans for a next episode, but we still love your feedback. And, uh, we're still maintaining our Twitter account where we love to talk about classic Apple, uh, retweet things that we find, uh, amplify people who are active in the classic Apple, classic Mac community. Uh, So if you do have any feedback, favorite iPods, things we missed, just how much you loved the HP branded iPod, (laughs) go ahead, tweet at us, (laughs) at simple underscore
1: beep. Mine was, uh, my favorite was the, uh, I think it was Harry Potter. You could get the, the Hogwarts crest officially engraved. Oh my gosh. Um, we are also, of course, individually on Twitter. I'm at BSUTO, B-S-U-T-O.
0: And I'm at ECORMANY, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. Thanks for listening and happy listening on your iPods in the future.